The guest today is Brian Burke. He's the author of The Hands-Off Investor, an insider's guide to investing in passive real estate syndications. Brian has acquired over half a billion dollars worth of real estate over his 30-year career, including over 3,000 multifamily units and more than 700 single-family homes. He's also the president and CEO of Praxis Capital, a real estate private equity investment firm. Ground on how you got started in real estate and maybe even uh, take us back to your first uh, real estate investment. Wow, that was a long time ago, Aaron. That was, uh, that was 30 years ago, actually 31 years ago now, I made my first real estate investment, which was just a, a single family rental uh, home uh, that I bought. I didn't even own my own house. I was renting an apartment at the time, working in a grocery store, and I uh, bought my first rental property with no money down uh, by getting the seller to carry back the down payment. Uh, I guess I didn't know it was that was really hard to do. So I just went out and tried and it actually worked. And that was my first real estate investment. From then I was hooked. Well, seller financing, the first deal, that's 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 very interesting. And I'm, I'm surprised you got that for the very first one without having any type of track record previously. That makes two of us. <laughs> right. And could you tell me maybe a little bit about what price you bought that property for, what you sold it for? Um, what type of renovations you put in and what, what are you finally net on that property? I wish I could. Gosh, if my memory went back 31 years, I'd be doing a lot better than I am. But okay. I, you know, it was, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I don't know. It was around a hundred grand. You know, it wasn't a very expensive property that was quite a long time ago. And, uh, you know, just, just kind of like paint and carpet, really. I didn't do a lot to it to, uh, to fix it up because it was pretty much in move-in ready condition as it was. And for me, it was just an opportunity to get into real estate and have a rental. And, uh, you know, I rented it out for, I don't know, a few years, a couple of years and then sold it. And when I sold it, I think I probably lost money. You know, maybe I even lost a few thousand dollars. I had no idea what I was doing. Right. And, you know, you know how it is. You fumble your way through and you make all your mistakes on the first few and then you really learn how to do it right. Right. No, I mean, having read your book, it, it certainly looks like, you know, what you're doing, you know, your book, book, a hands-off investor, um, you know, has a lot of um, knowledge and expertise in there from you. And in your book, um, you know, you talk about a variety of ways to invest in real estate. You know, you talked about your friend, Dan, the police officer, Bob, the radiologist and Isaac, the full-time investor. Maybe you can take us through, you know, various ways people are investing in real estate these days. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of different ways to invest. You know, uh, people often think when they think of real estate investing, they think of buying a rental home. And sometimes they're uh, real estate investors by default. In other words, they bought a house to live in, they moved away, uh, they kept the house, and then they became a landlord. Uh, that's how some people become real estate investors. It wasn't really an intentional choice. It just kind of led, you know, one thing led to another. Then there's people who you know, really make um, a business out of it. And, you know, the friends that I talked about uh, in the book, you know, really focused a lot of their extra time. Uh, and in one case, all of it, all of his time on investing in real estate. And there's so many different ways to do it. You know, whether, you know, like my friend Dan would, would buy a house, fix it up while he lived in it uh, and would own them for, you know, three, four years and, and really make a beautiful house out of it. And then he would sell it for much more than he paid for it, uh, you know, versus my friend Bob, who, you know, he was a, a physician and spent his off time, you know, hunting around for real estate investments that he could rent out 
you know, then there's uh, my friend Isaac, who was just all he did was real estate. He'd build homes. He would invest in rental houses and, you know, do fix and flip and, you know, all different kinds of things. So there's there's a lot of different ways to approach real estate investing. It's not just one right way to do it. Got it. I know one of the things you mentioned in terms of fix and flip is um, you mentioned during the uh, last financial crisis in, you know, 2008, you, you bought and sold some properties in the Bay Area. Um, can you walk us through that experience and, um, you know, in terms of maybe give some examples with some numbers on those properties? Yeah. So before the recession, that was my primary business was uh, was buying uh, single family homes to fix up and resell. And then I had a side business, basically, of investing in multifamily real estate and apartment complexes. So the but the primary focus of the business at the time was in single family. And we were, were based here in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, you know, a lot of the stuff we were buying before the car, uh, the crash was in our local area uh, in the Bay Area. So we weren't doing a lot. And I was doing maybe uh, a dozen houses a year, maybe a couple dozen houses a year uh, for about, a uh, I guess, about a decade. And then when the market collapsed, it created a, an incredible opportunity because all of a sudden, you know, our, our business had always been one of buying homes in foreclosure. So, we, you know, we were buying on the courthouse steps uh, for cash, fixing up and, and reselling. But now all of a sudden, the foreclosure volume was like drinking out of a fire hose. And there was so many foreclosures going through, Aaron. And, you know, all we did was just try to capture as much of it as we could. And we had to grow the business, which meant raising money from other investors. So we started raising money from people we knew, and then we'd started raising money from people we didn't know. And then, you know, some people would tell other people and just it organically grew over a couple of years time. And, you know, all of a sudden we were doing about 120 uh, homes a year that we were buying, fixing up and reselling. At the same time, uh, we were also starting to buy rental homes in the Bay Area. And we bought about $15 million worth of rental homes uh, at the bottom of the market in 2011, 12, and 13 uh, that we resold in 2018, 19, and 20 for about $45 million. So it turned out to be an incredible investment for us and for our investors. And, and that's basically how our growth got fueled. Right. I mean, talking about investors and raising money, I mean, your book, The Hands of Investor, really talks a lot about syndications. And and maybe for um, you know listeners that are not as familiar with syndications, can you walk us through your career transitions from fix and flip uh, into real estate syndication? Yeah, my my first entry into real estate syndication was kind of like being thrown into the shark pit. Uh, I was working in law enforcement at the time, and I was uh, buying, fixing up, and flipping uh, houses, and had been doing that for several years. Finally, I got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I, th I think I can do better in this business if I give up my full-time job. It was my, my night job was really what it was and, uh, and go to uh, just focusing on my real estate business full-time. So I put in my notice uh, with my employer and I told all the guys at the police station, I said, you know, hey, I'm, uh, I put in my notice and I'm gonna go full-time into this real estate thing that I've been doing for so long. They all knew what I'd been doing. And I said, you know, hey, I'm going to be looking for some investors. If you guys want to hear about what I'm doing, come on down. I rented the room out at the community center. I'm going to talk about it. So all the guys from the station came and, you know, I talked about uh, real estate and the opportunities and what I was doing, showed my track record of the houses I bought and fixed up and resold. 
And, uh, and by the time I finished the meeting, you know, anybody who wanted to sign up as an investor could sign up. And I walked out of that room with 28 new investors, uh, all of them carrying guns. Uh, and, uh, and that was how I got into real estate syndication. <laughs> got it. And I know your book talks about, I mean, it sounds really good, but your book talks about a cautionary tale about a woman. I think she was a grocery clerk. Uh, she saved up some money bought a fourplex it appreciated in value she sold it made some money and then she put into a real estate private offering i believe she invested in some senior housing and and she lost all her money so tell me the story about her and what are the stories you might have of you know what are some cautionary, cautionary tales of investing in you know private offering yeah you know when i when i made my very first real estate investment i was working in a grocery store i, I think i mentioned that and um you know i uh, i of course i'd i'd been there for five years and i knew everyone and you know would talk to them and i i had this interest in real estate so anybody that had anything to do with real estate of course would talk about it as well and there was one of the uh clerks there who had bought uh, a fourplex or maybe it was even two fourplexes and, you know, had owned them for quite a long time and they'd appreciated value. And, you know, this was her entire life savings as a grocery clerk. You know, they, we were topping out back then at about $14 an hour and uh, you know, it was a union job and there was a, you know, a little bit of a pension, but it's not a big one. And so, you know, this was a lot of money. This was a whole life savings. It was a, it was a substantial sum because this was in California and you know how real estate appreciates in California. So, you know, we were talking, you know, uh, high six figures and, uh, you know, she was basically set for life. If, if she played her cards right, you know, things would have been just fine. And, and she made a move that she thought was the right move by uh, selling those properties and investing them into uh, what was called a, a tick syndication, which is a tenant in common arrangement that allows you to do a 1031 exchange and sell your property tax free, invest the proceeds into a, a syndication. And she did that and uh, it was on a senior housing project. You know, the real estate, you know, seemed like it was good. This was, I think it was around 2004, you know, right in that area of time. And then uh, about uh, two years later, she was left with absolutely nothing. And, and what she came to find out was that the guy that was in charge of this syndication was siphoning off and stealing all the cash. Uh, flying around in corporate private jets and, you know, and that kind of stuff and basically bled all the money dry uh, and then skipped. Uh, and so she she lost her entire life savings. The uh, syndication sponsor that was in charge of that deal is uh, is in prison. Uh, and she's now, you know, uh, driving for a rideshare service just to put food on the table when she should be uh, set for life. So it's a uh, it was a, a thing that motivated me when I was thinking about writing this book that if I could just prevent one person from making that mistake and show them that you can invest in syndications and it doesn't have to it doesn't have to end like that. There's a right way to do it if you know what to look for. And that was what was so important to convey. So what are some right questions to ask before going to a private offering? I mean, what are some of the secrets that the sponsors don't want you to know? Well, what they don't want you to know is that there's no alignment of interest. Uh, you know, everybody always wants to look for alignment of interest. You know, how do I know that the sponsor's interests are aligned with mine? And, and uh, the, the real uh, truthful answer is they don't align with yours. So instead, what you have to think about is 
how do I find a sponsor that has the moral character, the experience, and the track record to produce a successful outcome with this investment? That's really what it comes down to are those, uh, those three things. Uh, if they lack any of the three, uh, the investment is in trouble. And if they lack moral character, it's doomed from the start. No matter how good things go, you're doomed from the start. So really, it's all about trying to figure out, you know, what this person is all about, what their what their history is and and, you know, how they think and, and try to learn their character, kind of like you would do if you were going to get married. You know, you, you don't just go out on a first date and then tie the knot the next morning. Uh, you know, you're going to take time to get to know someone and make sure they're the right person for you. And uh, this is the same thing. You have to make sure that sponsor is the right one for you. And, and you had mentioned in your books uh, about skin in the game for the sponsor. Can you expand on, you know, what percentage should the sponsor be putting in into that? Deal? It doesn't matter. And that's a con that's a really controversial answer. Uh, but but it's the truth. People uh, equate sponsors putting money into a deal with skin in the game. And they think that gives them safety. And, and the conversation will kind of go like this. This is the kind of things I hear. Uh, you know, the sponsor's putting in, you know, $100,000. So therefore, I know that the sponsor is going to take better care of this investment because if, if I lose money, the sponsor loses money. Or if I make money, the sponsor makes money. Uh, or they'll say things like, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, they're going to take care of me because, you know, they're in this on the same side of the table as me. And none of that is true. Uh, it's just a, a feel-good way. And, and, you know, I like to say that, People count skin in the game. You know, they think it's important because they can quantify it. They don't quantify it because it's actually important. What's really important is that the sponsor uh, has skin in the game in the form of having something real to lose. So if you have a sponsor that's been doing this for years and years and has a stellar track record, hasn't lost investor money you know, in their, in their history, and if they have, there was a really good reason for it, uh, and they have a reputation to protect, that's skin in the game. Because if something happens and that sponsor skips out on you or they, or they lose your money, it's so damaging to their reputation, it's a career ender. And any sponsor that's been in this long enough protects their career like, uh, like they would protect nothing else. That's real skin in the game. Having money in the deal is not skin in the game. And here's why. Uh, let's say that somebody, uh, let's go back to my friend from the, from the grocery store and say, okay, she invested with a crook. If the crook invested alongside her and that checks the box, right? That's what people want. They want to check the box that, you know, they have skin in the game and they're invested alongside me. Let's say that that person had done that. We already know they lack moral character, which is why they siphoned off all the cash. So the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to siphon off the cash that they put in. Because remember, the sponsor controls the checkbook. So all the sponsor has to do is siphon off the money they put in and then they'll skip out. So if they don't have a reputation to protect and they don't have a brand and they don't have a track record uh, and they don't have moral character, uh, you know, no amount of money being invested alongside you is any amount of protection whatsoever. So it, it's fine if sponsors put money in the deal, but don't think that putting money in the deal is an automatic check the box that they passed the test. And now you can move on to the next question. I mean, what happens, you know, if you don't like what the sponsor's doing as a limited partner, as an investor, how much of a say do you have in terms of the running of that 
that's not a lot and you know and and this is a this is both a good and a bad and i'll explain both so you don't have a lot of say which is a bad thing because you know you want to be able to have some control if the sponsor screws up well this goes back to exactly why i say it's so critical that you invest with the right people you have to be able to implicitly trust that they're going to make the right decisions because for you to alter their course is very difficult. Certainly you can call them up and, and lobby and try to influence them and say, Hey, have you guys thought about this? Or can you try to do that? Uh, but they're under no obligation to, to take your advice or direction. Uh, now the reason this is a good thing is because most syndications have a lot of investors and, you know, let's say you're one of uh, 50 investors or you're one of a hundred investors. The fact that you don't have any say in the operations also means that the other 99 people also don't have a say. And when you're investing with a sponsor and you're trusting their decision-making skills, their track record and their experience, you don't know the decision-making skills, the track record and the experience of the other 99 people that are invested alongside you. And you don't want them having any say in the matter over what happens to your money. So it, it, the knife cuts both ways, but, uh, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of say. Right. As a limited partner, um, you don't have much of a say. And I just want to get into the syndicate structure a little bit. I mean, the, the way you're describing syndicate structure sounds to me a lot like, at least in my terminology, like a hedge fund, where you have a general partner who's the, you know, who's creating the fund and then the investors are the limited partners and, Maybe you can walk me through that structure, how that relates to a typical, you know, in quote, a hedge fund, and then talk about, you know, I know in, in the hedge fund world, you know, there's a two and 20, um, you know, but maybe you can talk about what are some of the fees. Um, and but the other thing is, you know, why not just do it yourself? Why, why not save the fees and do it yourself, uh, you know? do it themselves? Yeah. So uh, all, all kinds of stuff. Those are great questions. So the, the structure basically looks, as you described, there's a, a syndication sponsor. Uh, you could also call them a syndicator. You could call them an operator, whatever it is that you want to call them. We're all talking about the same thing. It's a person like, like me. This is what our primary business is, is in structuring and, and operating uh, syndications in, in real estate. So somebody like me puts together a structure to say, we're going to go buy uh, an apartment complex for $20 million. Uh, so I'm going to go, I'm going to find that real estate, negotiate the contract, do due diligence to ensure that uh, the, the property meets all of our, uh, all of our requirements. And, and it is what we think it is. And we've verified the income and all those different things. And then uh, we have to, uh, we have to finance the $20 million plus about $5 million more in renovations and closing costs and all the other kind of stuff. So we're talking about a total of $25 million needs to come from somewhere uh, to be able to buy this property and execute the business plan. So we would go, we as a sponsor, we would go out and source some debt for the property. And we'll typically get that from like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac uh, or some other lender. We'll get, uh, you know, call it 65 to 75% of the property's purchase price from uh, that lender. Uh, just like you would get a mortgage on your home. And then the rest of the cash uh, has to come from somewhere else. Just like if you were to buy a home, you know, you'd have your mortgage and then you'd have your down payment uh, and closing costs. So the, you know, the balance of that 25 million, you know, let's say we got uh, 15 million from the lender, we still have 10 million more 
that we need to come up with. So we'll go out to a number of investors and, and those investors will contribute capital into the syndication structure as limited partners uh, in order to uh, give us the cash to go and execute the transaction. So each person might contribute 100,000, you know, some might contribute 250, they don't all have to contribute the same. You know, one person might put in 100, another person might put in a million. Uh, whatever it is, you get to the 10 million from that number of investors. Let's say you've got 100 different investors uh, and you've raised uh, $10 million. That's the, the essential structure. Now, uh, what happens to the cash flow is that the cash flow ends up getting split in some fashion. And there's a lot of different structures on the way that cash can get split. I go into a lot of those in the book. But generally speaking, uh, this, the investors will get some kind of a preferred return, which means that they get all of the cash flow until they receive some specified return on their money. Like let's say it's 8%. They get all of the cash flow until they've received a cumulative 8% return on their, invest on their investment. Then if there's any cash over and above that, then there's different rules that would apply depending on what the operating agreement says, either that uh, the surplus cash flow either gets split or it gets paid to the investors as a partial return of capital or, or whatever the case may be. There's a lot of different ways these are structured. That's the way uh, the cash ends up getting divided. Now, there are fees uh, with most syndications. And, you know, I walk through in the book a whole uh, subchapter on just fees. And, you know, there's acquisition fees and asset management fees and property management fees. And uh, there can be disposition fees and loan fees and in all sorts of different fees. And, and all that those fees are attached to some discipline that needs to be performed, whether it's uh, going out and sourcing the real estate or obtaining the financing or managing the asset or whatever it is. You know, there's always a reason uh, or some uh, element of labor involved in exchange for those fees. Now, why doesn't somebody just go and just buy the property themselves uh, and save all those fees? And the answer is, if you have the $10 million, uh, you can absolutely do that. Uh, if you have much less than $10 million, you can just go buy a much smaller property uh, in, instead of uh, a large asset like this. So the advantage to being in a syndication versus doing it yourself is generally people can invest in larger assets and get more economy of scale than they can if they invest on their own. The second reason is, is that a lot of people don't have time for this and uh, or the skill set. And, you know, if you uh, let's say, you know, a lot of our investors are engineers with large tech companies. So, you know, let's say you work for Google or whatever, Facebook or, or, or some large tech company and you're working 60 to 80 hours a week. Uh, you know, you live in a high cost area. You make a lot of uh, a high salary. You've got a lot of surplus uh, capital, but you don't have any extra time to go running around the country looking for properties to buy and none of the properties in your backyard cash flow uh, because prices are so high in that neighborhood. So the best option for you if you want to participate in real estate is either to buy REITs on the traded market or uh, invest in real estate syndications because it requires so much less of your time than if you were to go out and source assets directly. Also, you know, the sponsors have a lot of um, uh, connections and contacts in the industry and and they'll get uh, access to deal flow that you know most individual one-off investors will never see so you can get a better deal a much better deal even even when you divide the cash flow with a sponsor it can be a better deal than what you could get if you went invested on your own 
And the types of properties you're dealing with these days, it's mostly commercial. It's mostly uh, commercial in some form. Now, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of different uh, asset classes uh, or sectors of real estate, as I as I call them. And so, you know, you'll have the residential sector, uh, single family homes, duplexes and fourplexes. Uh, there certainly are syndications out there that invest in those. And we've done them. You know, we've done uh, several fix and flip fund syndications where we've bought multiple houses to buy, fix up and resell. Uh, we've done uh, buy uh, and hold syndications where we bought, you know, I mentioned all those rental homes that we bought at the bottom of the market. Uh, that was a syndication. We've done a fund where we have a home building fund where we're building uh, homes. Uh, here we had 5,000 homes destroyed by a wildfire in our city uh, two and a half years ago. And we have a fund that we, uh, that we raised and we're building homes uh, on those burned home lots. Uh, so they can be residential. Uh, it can also be lending. Uh, you know, we have a, a, a lending operation uh, where, you know, we've raised money and we make uh, bridge real estate loans uh, to, um, uh, to real estate investors. We also are uh, implementing a non-performing loan strategy where we acquire distressed debt from other lenders and service distressed debt. Uh, so that's another strategy that you can have uh, in a syndication. Uh, but commercial real estate is is probably the largest segment of real estate syndications where, uh, you know, we're buying apartment complexes. Uh, there's also ones uh, we don't do them, but there are syndications that buy hotels, office buildings, uh, industrial parks, special use. Uh, there's literally no limit to the different types uh, and sectors of real estate that syndications can invest in. I would say multifamily real estate is probably the most common uh, that most uh, most investors will see. And, and that's why I place a lot of emphasis on multifamily syndication in the book. And, and let's say somebody does want to start a syndication. I know you had mentioned a limited partnership. What type of entity structure are are would would um would that encompass does that mean it's an llc or is it a limited partnership um do you have an llc in the in the state where the property is and then you might have a holding company either in delaware or wyoming llc how does the the entity structure work if you are looking to start us it uh, it varies depending upon what it is you're trying to do now we do all of ours using a delaware llc and the reason that we do that, it isn't, you know, some people say, oh, there's asset protection of this, whatever. That's not why. The reason that we use a Delaware LLC for every syndication that we do is because that means that we don't have to rewrite our operating agreements to conform to a variety of state laws. The operating agreements can all be centered around one state's uh, entity structure laws. And all we have to do is modify the operating agreements to suit the business plan for that particular uh, uh, business. So uh, it saves us a lot in legal fees and headaches and, and having to put uh, thought behind how we're going to write operating agreements for all these different uh, things that we're doing all over the country. Uh, so that's why we do it. Now, if you're just going to do one syndication or you know, just a couple syndications, I recommend you know just doing it in the state that you're uh, just forming an entity in the state where the uh, real estate is, is located. Uh, but you know, get, count, get good counsel and ask your counsel uh, how to form your entities and what entities to structure. So they'll look like a lot of different things, you know, and, and it's a little bit of it is dependent upon where you are and what you're doing. So we've, 
We've done some where uh, we've done limited partnerships because they were California only entities where we were buying uh, like our fix and flip business, for example. Uh, you know, we're buying a lot of real estate in California to fix up and resell. We structured those as limited partnerships because in California, LLCs have a huge gross receipts tax. And, you know, you can be paying, you know, tens of thousands a year uh, in LLC fees in California when you have a lot of gross income, regardless of your net. Uh, so, you know, there's special reasons why you might make one entity choice over another. So it's generally going to be a limited partnership or an LLC. Uh, that LLC or limited partnership is going to have to be registered as a foreign entity in whatever state you're operating in. Uh, if it's an out-of-state LLC, like if you do a Delaware and you buy a property in Texas, you're going to have to register your Delaware LLC as a foreign entity in Texas. You know, not, not difficult stuff, but, you know, each deal is going to look a little bit different. Right. I mean, that was uh, the next question I was going to ask you is whether you register the Delaware LLC if you're, if you're buying property in Florida as uh, you know, for um, foreign LLC, or you would create a, a Florida LLC and then have that be the have the Delaware LLC be the the member of the Florida LLC. I wasn't sure which structure. Um, it was somebody who was interested. I've seen it done both ways. Uh, both both uh, of those answers. I've, I've seen yeah. that done. Yeah. Okay. The other thing I was uh, curious about is in your book, um, you had talked a little bit about the Delaware uh, statutory trust. Um, and I did notice, you know, there's a couple of drawbacks to the, the DST where the sponsor cannot raise additional capital. Uh, can you walk us through some of the pros and cons of the Delaware? Uh, yeah, well, if you remember my friend that invested, the grocery store clerk that invested her money in a senior housing deal, that was a tick, a tenant in common. And in a tenant in common, every person that invests is actually on the deed and owns a, an actual fee title interest in the real estate. And those are really popular back before the market crash as a way to use uh, 1031 money to, um, you know, to do a 1031 exchange out of your appreciated real estate and go into a uh, basically a syndicated offering and preserve your 1031 tax treatment. The problem was, is they were really abused and it was just, it turned out to be a big disaster. Lenders hated them because uh, there were so many people on title. Um, sponsors hated them because if you wanted to sell, you had to get everybody to sign the deed or, you know, there was just all kinds of, all kinds of challenges behind um, the tick syndication structure. So somebody came up with the concept of what if we created this trust and it was an IRS ruling that came out that said that the specific trust, it's called a Delaware statutory trust, uh, if it's structured properly, would qualify for 1031 exchange tax treatment. So this kind of became the, um, the successor to the tick strategy, where now you could take 1031 money and put it into a syndicated offering using a Delaware statutory trust. And everybody thought, great, you know, finally I found exactly what I'm looking for. I can do a 1031 exchange and, and get out of the active property business and get into the passive business without a, a having a, um, the tax man pull all the cash out in the middle of the transaction. Well, you know, as with anything in real estate, there's, there's no free lunch. And uh, every time you give somebody something, you take something away. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, the DST, while it is good because um, you uh, you can get 1031 treatment, it's it's not good because they attached to this a set of restrictions that are commonly known in the industry as the seven deadly sins. 
And there's basically seven things you can't do in a Delaware statutory trust structure. Uh, and if you do them, you will um, either potentially jeopardize or will jeopardize the 1031 uh, tax treatment of the entity. And what this could mean is, uh, you know, the most common ones that affect most investors, I listed them out in the book. And, you know, one is the sponsor can't raise any additional money and they can't refinance the property and take out cash. Um, they're, they're limited on what capital expenditures they can make. Uh, those are those are the big the big um, the big ones. And so what this means is, let's say you get into a DST, you buy the property, and all of a sudden uh, the, there's a, a coronavirus comes along and the uh, economy gets shut down, uh, and all of a sudden the half the tenants stop paying rent and the property is in negative cash flow, and you completely run out of cash. What happens? You know, normally in a syndication, the sponsor can put in money to patch it up. The investors could put in more money to patch it up. The sponsors could go raise additional cash, uh, you know, to build the reserves back in. But in a DST, they can't do any of that. Uh, if they do, then it automatically can trigger that the uh, all the investors would have to go pay tax on the money that they made when they sold the real estate that got them into the DST to begin with. So, you know, they end up having to go into what they call a springing LLC and it has to come out of the DST and go into an LLC. And it's just, it's a big mess. So the, the challenge with DSTs is they're not the perfect recipe. What they're good for is they're good for like, you know, class A multifamily property because you can't make these capital improvements. So it's not like you can go in and just renovate all the units and, you know, renovate the exteriors and put in new amenities and all that stuff. Uh, instead, you have to buy something that's pretty much, you know, turnkey. You don't have to touch it. Uh, they're good for things like a big warehouse that you're going to lease to a single tenant, like a FedEx distribution facility, an Amazon warehouse, uh, you know, a single large single tenant office, or, you know, maybe like a big department, uh, uh, department store type of a, like a tractor supply. You know, those are a lot of, I've seen a lot of DSTs for a tractor supply, you know, that kind of a place. Uh, that's what DSTs are, are really useful for. People want to try to put them in uh, to uh, the strategy of value-add multifamily, and it just doesn't work. And even if you have a DST, you still need a couple of LLCs, uh, like you need an LLC as the trustee, or you need another LLC as the manager. Is that yeah, you'll have a uh, you'll have what's called a master lease tenant because <clears throat> one other thing a DST can't do is they can't they can't sign leases like you know a bunch of leases. So like an apartment complex, you know, if you're if you're leasing to a tractor supply and you you, you give them a you know a fifty year lease, uh, then you know the DST is set, right? You don't have to worry about it anymore. But if you have an apartment complex with two hundred and fifty units, there's always people moving in and out. So you're signing one hundred and twenty five leases a year. And a DST can't do that. So instead, what they do is you create an LLC to be the master lease tenant. The master lease tenant leases the property from the DST as one lessor, lessee. And then it turns around and subleases the units to, to all the residents who, who live there. And, and so, yeah, you have that entity. So you'll have a manager entity. You'll have a trustee entity. It gets pretty complicated. And the entity structure is pretty enormous. And, of course, each of those entities are earning fees. So there's a ton of different fees inserted into the mix. And, you know, because the sponsors are prohibited from participating in the profits uh, like you can in a syndication, you can't have a waterfall in a DST. So instead, it's it's entirely a fee-based business. So the, 
the sponsors are forced to just have layers and layers of fees. And of course, fees mean the sponsors get paid even if the investors make nothing, which is different than in a syndication where if there's a profit split, you know, the majority of the sponsor's profit only comes if they actually perform. Right. I mean, it looks like there's just too many drawbacks for DSTs. I mean, it seems like the LLC structure is. There's tons of drawbacks, but they also serve a purpose. And, you know, if if uh, if, if you want to buy a nice class A multifamily building or a tractor supply uh, warehouse or, you know, a, a large distribution warehouse and rent it out and, and that's your investment strategy and you want to raise money. Uh, and you've got, uh, and, and then you're an, or you're an investor and you have a 1031 exchange and, and all you want to do is not pay the tax man. You're not worried about the return you earn. All you want to do is not pay the tax man. And believe me, there are a lot of people out there that will let the tax tail wag the investment dog. Uh, you know, then a DST may be a solution for you. Uh, so, you know, I, I can't say that don't ever invest in DSTs. I just say, don't think that the DST is a replacement for a syndication. Don't think that it's a, a you know, a be all end all solution, um, you know, for every situation. And if somebody wants to create a syndication, walk us through some of these um, documents you mentioned in your book. You mentioned, uh, you know, the PPM, private placement memorandum. Um, most of the investors are probably familiar with the LLC operating agreement. Um, you know, there's also the subscri subscription agreement that you also mentioned here, but walk us yeah, through. Yeah, so the, the operating agreement is the is the main document, and that's what controls the whole relationship. And it's just like, it's an operating agreement like one in any LLC. I mean, it's going to say, you know, what the business is authorized to do and who's authorized to make decisions and what the voting rights are and, and all that sort of stuff. But most importantly, it will say what the fees are and what the profit splits are. So the operating agreement is the controlling document. It's what it's what dictates the relationship between the managing member and the uh, and the other members or limited partners or investors or whatever you want to call them. The uh, the the private placement memorandum is a disclosure document, and really all it's doing is it's disclosing uh, the main points included in the operating agreement. Like it will restate the profit splits and fees, just so they're right up front, not buried in the language. And then it'll go into uh, all the risk factors and and the background on the sponsors. So you know the background is going to talk about the sponsors and their track record and what they've done before. And then the risk factors are going to talk about all the reasons why if you invest in this offering, you've completely lost your mind because you could lose your money. If there's an economic downturn, you can lose your money. If, um, if there's a tsunami, you could lose your money. If there's a big earthquake, you could lose your, you know, it's almost like the tag that's on the, uh, on your hairdryer that says, don't drop the hairdryer in the sink. Uh, you know, basically, it's going to tell you all the different reasons why you can lose your money or lose your investment so that you're aware of them. And it's not to scare you. It's just so that everybody's investing, knowing full well what the risks are so that if something happens, you can't say, gee, I had no idea that a virus could shut down the economy and all tenants would stop paying and we could lose money. I had no idea that was a risk going into this. And certainly nobody ever thinks something like that might happen or somebody might fly an airplane into a building. You know, there's always things that people don't think might happen, but you have to try to disclose everything you can think of uh, just so that people are aware of the different risks that are out there. 
Got it. And then what about that's just a basic document that's uh, that's binding you to the operating agreement. It's saying I subscribe to this investment and and I've seen the operating agreement and I agree to be bound by the terms of the operating agreement. That's all it is. Got it. And let's say somebody does want to create syndication. One of the challenges might be, you know, finding um, investors. And uh, in your book, you had mentioned, you know, um, accredited investors and as well as there are rules and regulations about advertising. And uh, so how does one go about actually finding um, investors with all these uh, regulation D. Um, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting conundrum for sure. And, you know, just as, you know, it's difficult for sponsors to find investors, it's also difficult for investors to find sponsors. And, you know, you, w- the way it doesn't work is you don't put up a billboard on the freeway and just assume that people who drive by are going to call a phone number. Um, that's not going to happen. And if you're an investor and you do see a billboard by the freeway, whatever you do, don't call the phone number uh, because that's probably not who you want to be investing with anyway. The way that this this business works and has always worked has been one where it's generally a word of mouth kind of business. So sponsors find investors by performing for investors. I mean, first you start in your circle of friends, people you know, people who already trust you for some other reason. You know, maybe they're related to you. Maybe you went to high school or college with them or whatever the case may be. You, you've you known them for a long time. They trust you. They have faith in your ability. They know where to find you. So they know you're not going to skip out on them. Uh, and maybe they'll trust you enough to put some money with you because this is all about trust. Remember that. So Uh, So you find a few investors, you do a couple deals and then, you know, they tell their friends like, oh, yeah, I invested with this guy. And then, you know, they call you and say, hey, my friend invested with you. I want to do that. You know, and then it just kind of grows organically by word of mouth and referrals like that. That's how our business grew. Now, it took 30 years to do it. But, you know, it's that's really how it's done. The uh, the Jobs Act, which was a a law passed a few years ago, changed that to a degree by creating a, a, a new uh, exemption in the uh, securities regulations called 506C, uh, Regulation D, Rule 506C. And Rule 506C says, okay, if you want to raise money, you can advertise. Uh, now, before that had always been prohibited, you could not advertise. That was one of the restrictions. If you want to raise money from other people, that's fine. You do that. But you can't advertise. You can only take money from people you already know or from word of mouth and referrals and that sort of thing. You can't advertise. Well, when when the uh, when it became uh, uh, allowed to advertise, that brought this whole new uh, thing called um, uh, called um, crowdfunding. And crowdfunding allows uh, investors to. Uh, uh, to subscribe to offerings online by just going to a website and and clicking a link. Uh, But uh, the difference is, is that if you want to advertise, you can only accept accredited investors. You cannot accept any non-accredited investors. And not only are you limited to only accepting accredited investors, you have to, as a sponsor, you have to take reasonable steps to ensure that the investor is actually accredited. You can't just take their word for it. You got to see their tax return or W-2 or, you know, a letter from their attorney or CPA or something like that. 
and it looks like there's a cottage industry industry that is that there is, is yeah there's third-party providers that that sponsors can hire to do that that due diligence for them uh, if they don't want to do it themselves got it and um you know i really want to thank you for the time that you spend with us today but you know if people have questions uh, what's the best way um, the best way you know generally uh, a couple of things i'm i'm really active on a website uh, biggerpockets.com i like to go there and answer questions about uh, uh, about real estate investments so i can often be found hanging out on biggerpockets.com in the in the forums uh, especially on the multifamily and commercial real estate forums also write uh, articles for their blog uh, or through our company website, which is prax, uh, praxcap.com, our company's Praxis Capital. Uh, the website is praxcap.com. Got it. And when is your It's already out. out. It just launched actually out. on May 5th, and uh, it's, it's out now. It can be, uh, you can get it at uh, biggerpockets.com forward slash syndication book. Or it's also available on Amazon and uh, and bookstores everywhere. Thanks uh, for thank having you, me on, Aaron. I really appreciate it. Really thank appreciate you. It.